In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. In this, the fifth in the Crossing Over the Bridge series, I'm joined by Wilma Subra, environmental scientist, Ian Crane, geopolitical researcher from the United Kingdom, and Scott Porter, investigating biologist. Wilma Subra started the Subra Company in 1981. The company is a chemistry lab and environmental consulting firm in New Iberia, Louisiana. Wilma Subra provides technical assistance to citizens across the United States and foreign countries concerned with their environment by combining technical research and evaluation. The information is presented to community members so that strategies may be developed to address their local struggles. Wilma Subra holds degrees in microbiology and chemistry from the University of Southwestern Louisiana. She's also received the MacArthur Fellowship Award from the MacArthur Foundation for helping ordinary citizens understand, cope and combat with environmental issues in their communities. Ian Crane, an ex-oil field executive, now lectures and writes on the geopolitical webs that are being spun, with particular emphasis on US hegemony and the NWO agenda for control of global resources. Since 2007, he's focused his efforts on raising public awareness of the pernicious attacks on the global population in the name of corporate globalization and harmonization. And my third guest, Scott Porter, is a staff scientist and has over 21 years experience as an investigative biologist with an environmental survey company, Ecologic Environmental. He began as an oil field consultant whose zone of study includes the coastal Gulf states, with a concentration in the Louisiana's estuaries and petroleum platforms. Through his services as an independent survey biologist specializing in biological resource analysis, he's collected over 5,000 biological reef samples and has over 3,000 scuba dives from 1988 to 2009. Scott Porter holds a degree in marine biology and has discovered new species on the platform that have not yet been documented in the Gulf of Mexico and Atlantic Ocean. Crossing Over the Bridge, with Wilma Subra, Ian Crane and Scott Porter, preceded by a short audio extract from the July 20th program with the late Matthew Simmons. The oil is coming up from the wellbore that's 7 to 10 miles away that was created by the drill bit when BP decided to use the Transocean Deepwater Horizon to finish off a job they deemed to be too risky in February. The only way that the scientists that know about this stuff know how to actually stop an open hole blowout is one of two ways. 
either wait till it depletes or put a nuclear bomb down to the oil column and set it off and you fuse the rock into glass and it's over. What do you see as the failures at the moment with this situation? Well, the, first of all, it, it, unfortunately, it apparently takes the Navy about six months to make that. They don't have their toolkit. Other than that, we can wait. Now, when XTOP blew out back in 1979 down in the Bay of Campeche, that was one of the 40 wells of the Cantorell complex, which are all compartmentalized. And that was blowing at 80,000 barrels a day. And they tried all of these things and realized they just had to wait till reservoir pressure depleted. So 10 months later, it was over. If this is only a half a billion barrel field, and BP was hoping it was 25 billion, and at 120,000 barrels a day, in 11 years it would be over. What about the leadership in this situation? Has it failed, or do you think that there are other forms of structure that could come in now and take care of this? No, I think it's too late. I think the Gulf of Mexico is now dead. I think the likelihood is it'll never recover. We have got to stop the leak. We have then got to be very concerned about the human health when the stuff from the bottom comes up. It's bad enough for the stuff that we were hearing about on the surface. But when a hurricane comes, what the hurricanes always do is they sweep the cold water up. Well, this time it's not cold water, it's poisonous tar. And what about the materials they're using, this corrective material? It didn't, it didn't, it, it didn't cause anything. It, didn't, it just made it worse. What do you think ultimately is going to come out of this situation? I think ultimately we're going to come out with the realization that the, that the age of fossil fuel was ending and we need a whole new way. And that's why I'm so excited about what we're doing on energy in the ocean from clean ways. It can be the future, but we have to get going on it fast. Now, do you believe that this is going to be the wake-up call not only for America, but the whole world? Yeah, I actually do. I, th I think I'm, I've been amazed at how riveted people around the world have been on this story. And I think we've had a lot of other stories before that have been ho-hum. So I think this is the wake-up call. Welcome to In Discussion Today and a Crossing Over the Bridge program, I believe our fifth in the series. And I would like to welcome Wilma Subra. Welcome to you. Thank you. Ian Crane, welcome. Hi, David. And Scott Porter, welcome to you today. Thank you, David. Good to be here. It is a great pleasure talking to you all today. I'd like to start with Wilma Subra. Could you give us a brief overview of your experiences, activities, your objectives? I have been working with the communities in the coastal areas uh, along the Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Panhandle of Florida, dealing with the health impacts and the economic impacts that occurred as a result of the BP spill. We had two segments of the environment severely impacted. We had those located along the coastal areas that were severely impacted by the aerosol, which was caused when the oil slick was still in the Gulf, hadn't reached the land yet, but was dispersed into the air by the high winds and high seas, blown on shore, making people very sick. And then the second part of the population was the fishing community who was immediately put out of work and wanted to go to work for BP. They went to work for BP, were not trained properly, were not provided with protective gear, and as a result were severely injured, made sick every single day. They came back at night, went back out again in the morning and were sick again, but they desperately needed those jobs. They were not allowed to speak out. The wives started speaking out. They were told if your wives continue to speak out, you'll be fired. So Mary Lior of Louisiana Environmental Action Network and I became the voice of the fishermen, working all the way up to the federal level, trying to get them the proper training and protection so that in the workplace environment they were engaged in, they were not made sick. 
since that time, the sicknesses have continued and increased in both workers, ex-workers, current workers, people living along the shoreline coming in contact with the crude, with the dispersant, and with the residues left in the environment. I've also been doing a lot of sampling along the coastal areas of the water sediment sludge and fish, oysters, shrimp, and crabs. And then I've started doing sampling of blood in the people who are sick and finding high levels of the volatile organics that are in the crude, finding it in people's blood. Could you define the level of sickness? Are we talking about general complaints all the way through to this suspected bacteria that essentially eats flesh, eats people alive? We haven't encountered the flesh-eating bacteria. We have encountered all the respiratory impacts, all the nausea, all the severe skin rashes, tumors along the portions of the body, We've also had cardiovascular impacts, and we've, we've had people that are, are doing the chronic impacts now because they've actually been more than nine months, so it's really been chronic exposure, not that acute exposure. So we're starting to see the chronic exposure as well, and it just gets worse day by day. Let me turn to Scott Porter. Sorry to hear that you are feeling unwell yourself. You spend a lot of time in the Gulf collecting samples immediately after the spill. What are your conclusions at this stage and your experiences as of today? Well, I used to work for an environmental laboratory, and um, the symptoms that I had at the end of August reminded me of a chemical burn in my chest. That was the acute symptoms. But now the chronic symptoms that are showing up later are, um, you know, uh, irritation in my kidneys, maybe prostate issues, we're not sure, but um, myself and several other people that were exposed to it are having prostate issues now. And of course, you know, whether it scarred our chest because of it, because it was flu-like symptoms there for a while, we're not sure if that caused our respiratory um, irritation or or the mucus buildup that we're seeing now. I, um, Wilma, actually, Dr. Supra just found, just did my blood test, um, a few weeks back and um, found that I was high in ethyl benzene, you know, there, and that was, I guess, from our exposure. Even though I was wearing a dry suit, you know, you still come in contact with it in your face and hands and such, So, or you breathe it at the surface. You know, my blood, I mean, it, it's there. Now what do we do? we got to try to hopefully depurate it out if possible. Before I turn to Ian Crane in the United Kingdom. Wilma Subrick, do we have any idea of the extent of the illness across the coastal states at this stage? Well, it's in the at least tens of thousands of people on the shoreline that were exposed to the crude just by coming in contact with it in the marshes in the, the beach area. And then we have the huge number of workers. The National Institute of Environmental Health is actually going to perform a health tracking and they are engaging 75,000 workers, and that's just a portion of the workers. And then when you start looking at the people who are fishers who are out there that weren't workers, you look at the people who are diving, you look at the people who worked on the other rigs out there that were exposed. It's just a very, very large population. Ian, let me turn to you, because we've discussed this in past programs, obviously talking about the immediate and long-term outlook for people. The Corexit material that has been used, which is highly toxic, has a profound effect upon the soil 
and the air in that area. How do you think that this is going to travel now as we go into the coming months? Well, I think um, I'm going to stay by you know what I said when I recorded the DVD on July the 23rd. This was a population reduction event, and uh, you know the great tragedy is, uh, as we have discussed uh, before um, with Pat, is that outside of the immediate Gulf Coast area, this is a non-event. It's not getting any kind of um, uh, reportage in the in the mainstream media. I mean, people in Boston uh, or even on the uh, the West Coast. I mean, this is ancient history. I mean, you might as well be talking about 9-11. It's the same deal. And yet we're not even a year out of the event yet. And, and some of the terminology doesn't help. I mean, when did this get called a spill? You know, a spill by definition is, you know, a, a liquid just sort of tippling over the top of a container. This isn't a spill. This is an environmental disaster of, uh, of uh, enormous magnitude. And, uh, and, of course, the effects are going to reach far and wide, not just, as Wilma says, uh, you know, in the, um, uh, in the atmosphere, um, in the rainfall. But, uh, you know, now we're getting it in the seafood. And the, the U.S. military, of course, um, uh, is doing its best to, uh, to pollute the, uh, the military personnel because it's bought up. Um, what did I read? 3,000 tons of seafood from the Gulf Coast, and it's uh, not only dishing it out to, to the servicemen, but it's selling them in the, in the stores. So, and this is uh, seafood that um, I think Wilma herself, I think, is on record as saying this is, this is not safe. Let me return to you, Wilma Subra. This is clearly a very serious impact, I suspect, not only on the coastal states, but far and wide going into the future. Could you give me your perspective as to why the main media is not stepping up in integrity, covering these stories and educating the public there? Well, there was a lot of coverage early on, as you know, and then about July... The federal agencies and BP announced that most of the oil was gone. And when they made that announcement, it was like the media just deserted us, went away, and we've been left to deal with the situation on an ongoing basis without any information being disseminated by the mainstream media. And so as a result of that, when the federal agencies say, well, most of it's gone, or like we had a report come out that said two years the estuaries will be back and the seafood will be back and four years the oysters will be back. And then this week we had a Coast Guard report that said that all the beaches were going to be okay in a month or two and everything was going to be fine and they're pulling out. If that message keeps getting out, no one from the main media is going to be down here looking for the stories. But yet, on a day-to-day -day basis, I see the stories. I see a huge number of people very, very sick. I see a total lack of health care so that even when we are able to identify the people who are sick, we have very difficult time getting them to a doctor who understands what they've been exposed to and understands the associated health impacts. So we are left with a real need for medical care for all of these people who are very, very sick. What about the air quality in that area? Do we have any data to suggest what the air quality is at this stage? Air quality in the marshes and along the beaches where the 
oil continues to wash inshore, is still being degraded. However, the air quality is much better since they're no longer burning the crude oil offshore, and, and we don't have the slick floating on the surface. But it's now confined to the areas right along the coastal wetlands and the coastal beaches. Scott Porter, your work is continuing in collecting data, or what is your position at the moment? Yes, we are um, continuing to collect data. We've uh, kind of switched our focus from offshore. Uh, we have plenty of video showing the dispersed oil, like like um, Dr. Super said, that in July when they said that it was out, wasn't out there anymore, we went out and videoed every time a 30 or 40-foot layer that we thought was dispersed oil. And like, like she said, trying to get the, the media's attention to it and to tell the whole story. Well, they, they gave us some attention, but they didn't tell the whole story. They, they kind of whitewashed it themselves. So what we've done is we are now trying to search and find out where they're taking the oil. And it looks to us right now that they're bringing it inshore into a place called Grand Bois, and, which is an open-air pit for industrial liquids, called U.S. liquids down here in the middle of a marsh or wetlands. Um, I don't know if y'all want to go into that, but that's that's the areas that we're looking at right now with the Indian uh, tribe that's down there. Is there any evidence, Scott Porter, that the Corexit is still being sprayed? Well, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. We've been hearing from the, the fishermen that are down there that they're still seeing C-130s fly at night. But we asked, we asked Plaquemines Parish, we've asked our governor, um, nobody can give us a straight answer. They tell us we have to either talk to BP or the Air Force. And from what I'm understanding, that the flights are going out of Gulfport uh, nightly, all night long. And you'll only know about it if you live near the airport. So, but we can't get confirmation of it. That, you know, maybe we need to file a freedom of information request for you know, what's being shipped in and out of that area by truck. Then we would know if they're, you know, they're spraying it still. You are currently unwell, and you are on the ground. Are you and many others having these symptoms, and what are you feeling? What is the state of your health at the moment, and are you receiving any help from doctors, from MDs? Well, I personally am not receiving any um, help from uh, medical doctors right now. We're trying to use um, natural remedies to uh, hopefully depurate it out of our body. However, there are several workers, like she was saying, um, people that I know that were working on the platforms that were sprayed when the C-130s came over, and their doctors are finding nothing. And they know they're sick. They're having the same symptoms that I am in the chest and in their, um, in their urinary tracts and the prostate. And um, even some skin lesions, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're seeing um, itchy, uh, an itchy rash and the, their doctors are just at their wits' end. So we're hoping that this new, uh, you know, more uh, acute test that they can run for the benzenes and for the volatile organics. Uh, that, but the, the local doctors aren't looking for that. And we've been asking, well, why? Why aren't they looking for that? And, of course, the rumor, and it's, you know, how, how do we know, but is that the doctors have been told not to look, you know, not to look on, on the, for those uh, compounds. So... But how do you know if that's true or not? I know that they're not looking, <laughs> so that's all we can say for sure. Let me ask you, Wilma Subra, you're indicating that there are some tens of thousands of people ill now. I'm assuming, and it's a rather naive question, but this is including an awful lot of children. 
Yes, we, we did some blood testing on some children, and we found that, in fact, they had really high levels. They were members of fishing and crabbing families that were out on the water with their parents, and they had high levels as well. Uh, when you talk to the medical doctors and their staff, they're seeing a lot of children with respiratory problems, with skin rashes, and continue to come into the office day after day after day. They treat them, and then they get re-exposed, and they have to come back again. Ian Crane, looking at the bigger perspective here, is there any opportunity or is there any likelihood in your view, that the executives of BP are going to come back in, re-examine this, and take a more active role? The only active role they're going to take is pumping more money in to keep people quiet. I mean, I'm just looking at the statement of finances that uh, you know BP uh, has put out from um, uh, just a few days ago, and uh, and so far, you know, we're looking at five billion that has been paid uh, throughout the Gulf states. And, and there's one payment, one type of payment classification that uh, I find very interesting. It's, it's a behavioral health payment. And in Alabama alone, um, you know, 12 million has been paid out on behavioral health payments. And you know, this is a very interesting classification. And uh, I'd love to get a little bit more detail on what that actually refers to. I mean, it is claimed that it... Um, uh, purports to dealing with claims regarding mental health issues in the Gulf Coast. Um, but I'm not sure what uh, you know, BP will classify or have diagnosed as mental health that warrants this kind of money. Th listen, you know, unfortunately, this is a classic example of the corporatist state at work. And, uh, I mean, as we know, the Senate was completely shut down. It's the reason that the Gulf Coast hearing under Thad Allen has absolutely no teeth whatsoever. It has no power of subpoena. Um, it, and, uh, I mean, as you know um, yourself, David, I mean, I named the individual that was put on the rig uh, to make this happen. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind whatsoever that this was a contrived event. And you know, I'm completely disgusted by my own former company, Schlumberger, um, because as we have discussed previously, I mean, Schlumberger were on the rig immediately prior to the blowout. It was the Schlumberger engineer that advised uh, Robert Kaluza, uh, the, um, the company man that was put on the rig to replace uh, Robert uh, Sepulvado, the most experienced company man in the BP fleet, four days before the blowout. Schlumberger advised him that... Um, uh, the rig was about to blow and it needed to be uh, shut down. He refused to heed that, heed that advice. Although the Schlumberger engineers were evacuated from the rig, um, to this day, the Schlumberger engineers have not appeared before the Gulf Coast hearing. And uh, the, the chief executive officer of, um, of Schlumberger has uh, apparently made it very clear that uh, Schlumberger employees are not to talk to me. And, um, and you know, there is a complete... Uh, shut down on any information. I mean, the, the whole of the oil industry here has closed ranks. You know, Schlumberger obviously is, uh, is concerned that it might not get uh, the opportunity to bid for other BP contracts around the world. So, you know, they just do what they feel they need to do here, which is um, keep very quiet. 
and, and they need to keep the people as quiet as possible in the Gulf, and that's why such enormous sums of money are being you know, pumped into, uh, into the Gulf. And you know, we're looking at massive, massive payments. I mean, payments to individuals and businesses just in Alabama, $749 million. Um, you know, payments uh, to people claiming for lost tourism, $22 million. Um, and when, it, when we look at the research payments, I mean, it's minimalistic. And contributions, this is contributions uh, to, to charities, 300,000. You know, BP here are going to literally do what it takes to, um, uh, to keep this thing off of the, uh, the mainstream media. We, we know it's being reported locally in the Gulf Coast, but the moment that you get probably beyond... 50 miles of the, uh, the Gulf Coast, it's, it's history. So tragically, tragically, the onus is very much going to fall upon um, the likes of Wilma and, and Scott and the other activists to, to really just do what they can, and the likes of yourself, David, to try and broadcast this, cast this out to the uh, wider world. Wilma Subri, you were very involved in Katrina in trying to create an assemblance, a recovery. How do you place that up against this disaster here in the Gulf of Mexico? Well, Katrina was really widespread, and it was followed less than a month later by Reader. So we had this huge damage and destruction from Texas all the way to the Mobile area. But once the hurricane passed, everybody started looking forward to what do we need to do to recover. And that was huge. But when you look at this BP disaster, the oil continued to flow for many, many months. And as a result, it was not something that you could look past and say, okay, how do we recover from this? It kept getting worse and worse, having more and more damage along the coastal areas, the estuaries, more and more damage to people's livelihood and people's health. And it just kept getting worse and worse. And as a result, people became very, very depressed. Once the flow of oil was stopped in July, then everybody was trying to say, well, it's over, but yet there was a, still a huge slick out there still coming on shore, continuing the damage. And then when you started looking at the um, financial recovery part, people were very disappointed that it didn't really cover what they had really lost. And so it's just been like one hit after the other. It's not getting any better. It's getting worse day by day by day, as opposed to the hurricane the perspective was we were making progress moving forward. And in this case, with the BP disaster, we're not making progress. We're going downhill. What is the impact on the fishing industries now in these coastal regions? Some of the fishermen have gone back to work. A lot of the fishermen say they're not going to work and catch the seafood that they feel is still contaminated. In some cases, when they haul trawls in, it's covered with oil, and seafood in it's covered with oil. But these fishermen are also looking out for the livelihood of their families and saying, we're not going to harvest the seafood because we think it's going to damage our families as well as we don't want to sell a product that's not clean. 
based on the analysis we've done, there is contamination in the seafood. It is not above the levels that the Food and Drug Administration has established. We think that those levels are too high to protect human health, and yet the Food and Drug Administration established those levels specifically for this one disaster. So you have a lot of fishermen that have gone back out and worked. You have a lot of the seafood industry really supporting the sale of Louisiana seafood. Um, We heard a little bit about them selling to the military last week. It was the Mardi Gras activities in D.C. that they brought a lot of the seafood up for that. So there's a mixed reaction from the seafood industry as to whether the economic benefits will be damaged even further or whether they can recover and continue to sell Louisiana seafood. Based upon the data that you have collected and Scott Porter have collected, is there evidence to suggest that at this stage it would be prudent for people, if they have the means, to actually depart from this region? That's a tough one. When the slick was offshore, I received a lot of phone calls and emails from people living on the shore that had, like, premature babies that had respiratory impacts and the babies were sick and they were trying to decide whether to leave their homes or continue to live there and have their family get sicker and sicker. I'm not seeing that much new health impacts. I'm seeing the continuation of the health impacts that have impacted such a large part of the population, but I'm not seeing new people coming down with the health impacts other than new people that are going out to work as BP or BP contractors that are coming in direct contact with the oil. Scott Porter, that question for yourself. Are you seeing as the prime problem here the Corexit material itself? And is that something that is even raised in any way in any of the affiliate networks across that region? Actually, we can't get anybody except Mary Lee Orr and Dr. Supra to uh, even mention the word core exite. And if, it's kind of funny because, you know, doing so much work out on the water, we knew if you even put any kind of soap in the water out there, the Coast Guard would be all over you. And it just seems now they can put millions of gallons of core exite, which I believe is actually worse on the environment. Um, we're looking at coral reef that exists underneath the platform. And, and, you know, the indicator organisms, the most sensitive organisms down there have already died. Now, we can go and point out to spider crabs and sea urchins that we're not seeing there anymore, and some corilla morphs, which are a type of um, uh, invertebrate. So there are organisms that we can, you know, go and look for and not find anymore. Um, however, NOAA and LSU, they don't know about these organisms because they have been ignoring us for over 10 years. And, I mean, I will point the finger, you know, Ian Crane mentioned names. You have to mention names. You've got to hold these people accountable. There's a fellow at LSU named Jim Cowan. He got $550 million from BP to study this. And they don't even acknowledge the reefs exist around the platforms. They've, he's been on the, gov- the um, oil company's payroll as a spokesman for them because he's been, he's been the hedge against um, uh, the NEPA document um, actually acknowledging the coral reefs that exist underneath the platforms. If they, if they acknowledge that coral reef and other protected organisms exist underneath the platform, then they're, 
the cost for the NEPA document every year, every five years that that's produced, and other research that they'll have to to start looking at. Um, you know, it just costs so much. They're saying it's going to raise the price of fuel. So uh, since we're removing the platforms, they're not acknowledging the fish and the um, invertebrates that's held there. I have two questions for you. Firstly, what was the timing of that funding that was presented to LSU? Was that recently? And my second question for you, we haven't talked about the trauma that is experienced by the sea life. Could you talk to those two points? Yeah, actually, we, we've seen it on video. The, um, just our normal fish activity, it seems to be irritated when they're in this layer of, core of uh, dispersed oil, what we're seeing. And then, um, of course, the bait fish uh, and, and whatever mackerel that you see at the surface, usually they avoid these areas like the plague. And uh, so the actual marine life that we see um, that can get away from this stuff will typically get away from it, except for the sharks. The sharks don't seem to be bothered by it. They're, they're living right there in and amongst it. And, um, and also except for the snapper. And that's another thing that you don't hear people talking about, the snapper. They don't get up and, and swim you know, long distances, so they have to live underneath that core exite. So, um, you know, I've got snapper in my freezer right now that I caught in August and I can't bring myself to eat. You know, and as as, a, um, as an oyster biologist, I, I realize the the compounds that the filter feeders are picking up down there. So we believe that, yeah, um, whatever's living in it is uh, in a stressed state right now. And in regards to the question of the funding for LSU, do you know what the timing of that was? Was that since this disaster took place? Oh yes, sir. That was the middle of the summer, around July, we believe, when when they started talking about BP was going to put money into. The research of the effects of this bill, it went to LSU. All the money that came into the state um, for our research went straight to LSU. And LSU is like a black hole for research dollars. I mean, they go there and they stop. And it's been that way since the 70s. And, and real, I mean, you know, as a, as a biologist, I do grant work with them um, from time to time. But I'm an independent consultant, so I, you know, I'm able to say what I feel. And you can either, you know, you can either tell me that I'm wrong or we can go and look at the factual data there. Ian Crane, your thoughts on, in particular, these issues of the longer term for sea life, because I was talking to a very eminent scientist in Los Angeles recently who talks to the trauma of the sea life in future decades. And also, this is a huge problem, is it not? This funding directed at these institutes and at the media to defer the major issues, and that is of saving people's lives. Oh, I, I mean, look, untragically, and I mean, it rips my heart out to say this, but you, know, the reality is that the priority here is shareholder value. You know, BP and Halliburton and Transocean, and to lesser extent Schlumberger, they've all mitigated their exposure and their liability by agreeing to effectively spread the, the blame. BP, of course, should be liable under US legislation on the basis of the visible slick. But uh, one of the things, of course, that Corexit has done is it has not only dispersed the slick, but it's forced it under the surface. So the liability uh, of BP is mitigated even further um, because the slick is, is now subsea. Sub, uh, subsurface and of course we know it's creating a dead zone 
so that uh, you know much of the life below this this slick is um, you know, either dead or dying. And what we saw gifted to LSU is literally the thin end of the wedge because, uh, from my understanding, LSU picked up five million out of a five hundred million dollar research initiative that BP established around the Gulf Coast, and basically. You know, what that was uh, designated for was to buy up academia right the way around the Gulf. So, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, the long-term effects of this are certainly being recognized you know, by the likes of uh, Wilmer and Scott and Pat and, uh, and other activists and healthcare professionals um, around the Gulf. But... Um, uh, I, can't, I don't see the effort. I mean, obviously, the U.S. government is is doing absolutely nothing. Um, they don't want to draw attention to it. The corporations are doing absolutely minimal um, work in terms of uh, helping the environment because they don't want to admit there's the magnitude of the problem. And you know, and I know I've come back to this this point so often before with you, David. But you know, the smoking gun is to absolutely identify beyond any shadow of doubt what happened on the rig and to prove that this was a deliberately perpetrated event and the the company that holds the key to this is my former company Schlumberger and the chairman and chief executive officer of that company Andrew Gould who's who's been with the company for some 30 odd years and this company has a responsibility to share what they know transpired on that rig in the period running up to you know, 9.20 or whatever it was on the evening of April 20th when the well blew. Because that would absolutely demonstrate beyond any shadow of doubt that this was a BP responsibility. And, and at that point, of course, then they could be held accountable. But everybody, everybody, you know, from the, uh, the Senate, well, the President and the Senate down, has effectively been bought off to, to keep quiet and just sort of basically let these, let these people uh, endure their trauma and, uh, you know, we'll throw them the scraps. And, and as we've said, you know, the trauma is getting spread because, you know, the Corexit, um, having forced the, uh, the slick under the surface, you know, we have no idea where that slick is now. Um, you know, there is the speculation that uh, the increased viscosity has impacted on the, the Gulf Stream and, and either slowed or stalled the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic, um, which, you know, it may explain why we've had the extreme cold weather that we had through um, uh, December and early January. Well, let me tell you, I would much rather endure a few cold winters here in Northern Europe than have to deal with the, uh, the content of... Um, of that oil corrects it mix because you know as uh, as scott rightly identified you know oil is a toxin at uh, 11.2 parts per million but the oil corrects it mix is toxic at 1.2 parts per million and and i and i literally believe that uh, you know we are going to be you know, those of us that know what we're looking for we are going to be aware of the impact of this for a long 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 time to come can I just ask you, before I return back to Wilma Subra, 
Ian, I had posed the question to Wilma, and it's clearly an extremely difficult decision to make. And we want to be solution-led and not put fear into people's minds. What is your view on that? I mean, I understand where Wilma's coming from. It's a very, very tough call to make, especially, you know, if you've lived in that area all your life. And, and I mean, you love the area. Um, you know, I lived in Texas many years and, uh, you know, I enjoyed the hell out of Texas and I enjoyed the hell out of traveling, you know, uh, I-10 and, um, you know, from New Orleans and across to Destin. I mean, it's beautiful, beautiful uh, part of the, the country. But would I stay there now? Absolutely not. I mean, if I had the resources, I would definitely um, uh, be moving somewhere else. But I also know that that is perhaps nigh on impossible for many people. I mean, we, we know, you know, there's 200,000 people in Florida who are not paying their mortgages right now uh, because the, the property market in Florida has, has absolutely tanked uh, because of the, um, the Gulf disaster. And I'm, you know, obviously uh, very aware that it's very similar in uh, Alabama, Louisiana, and, um, you know, in the, in the Gulf Belt in Texas. So, you know, some people, they're, they're well into negative equity. Um, you know, what do they do? Do they just walk away from, from a property that, uh, you know, they may be mortgaged to the hilt on, um, but it's where they've lived all their lives. It's a very, very tough call. But when it comes to the health of your children, or your grandchildren, um, because there is so much doubt here, so much doubt about, uh, I, I think it was Ricky Ott, uh, some time ago, who said that this whole area is an unmitigated human experiment. And that still applies for me to this day. Wilma Subra, would you concur with that, given the scientific evidence that you've collated, the data, that clearly it's an extremely difficult situation. It's a position of high responsibility in these programs not to drive people into a state of fear, but nevertheless educate them so that they can take the necessary decision, particularly if they do have young children? I think I, I agree to a certain extent that the people need the information for them to make their individual decisions. Um, I work with a lot of fence-line communities that are adjacent to petrochemical and industrial facilities, and they frequently want to be relocated out of that area. But they also want to be relocated together so they don't lose that social fabric they have. And when you start looking at people along the coast having to make a decision whether or not to leave everything they've had in their family for generations and relocate to some other location, that's a difficult decision to make for their themselves and their families. So the ideal situation is to provide them with all the information that's available so they can make their own decisions. What do you personally think that we should be discussing in terms of solutions and the message that must be sent to the executives at BP and any other organization implicated in this or participating in this? From two perspectives, I think BP must admit how much damage the Deepwater Horizon disaster has occurred, both environmentally, human health, to the estuaries, the ecosystem, as well as people's life in general, and 
remedy that damage. When we start looking along the coastal areas where the oil came in and we start talking about natural resource damages, we also start talking about remediating that damage. And at the same time we're talking about remediating, the federal agencies and BP are talking about how little damage has occurred. So that tends to make people not assess the damage quite as bad so that if you don't have an adequate evaluation of the damage, then you don't do an adequate assessment of what kind of remedial activities are possible. And then when you look at what the BP disaster has done to the social fabric of all the communities and what those communities have lost, it should be BP's responsibility to make that right. Scott Porter, your thoughts on the immediate needs and the way that we need to reach out through these programs going forward to those who have a responsibility to put this right, whether it's BP or the government or academia who are receiving these large fundings? Well, um, I see that there's two areas they need to look at. Of course, for the, um, for the research, they need, to, um, they need to start studying the reefs that are out um, under these platforms uh, for the filter feeders that are there. Um, we've already documented the types of organisms that are there and what you should find. We can use those as indicator organisms and tell us what levels of uh, compounds, whether it's benzene or whatever volatiles or um, organics may be out there. We can determine that and then begin to looking at the depuration of that, what kind of timeline, because those organisms will tell us. We can bring them back into the lab, hold them in clean water, and then test them periodically for their levels, and that will tell us how much they're actually able to naturally depurate. Um, as far as the people, uh, BP has paid out a lot of money, but it's not actually getting to the individuals. It, you know, There's some companies that's gotten money, but um, if you look in Venice and Grand Isle and Cocodri right now, those are the three you know, coastal areas that are hit the hardest. There's businesses that are going under. Um, that's fishing businesses and oil field related business. Uh, I have an oil field related business, and we haven't worked since November of last year. Um, it's just the permitting processes are so hard for these companies, and we're a service company, and we're a consultant, environmental consultant. So uh, we don't work if they don't get permits. And as a result, I mean, they're not paying me any money. I'm not receiving money from BP or any of those guys. I work for my money. And that's all we're asking. We want to get back to work. But, like, you know, like Dr. Supra says, you know, what are the um, dangers that we're going to be put in when we get back out there to go to work? That, that's what I think they need to look into. Ian Crane, can I return to you? Surely this compensation that is being paid out and the endorsement sponsorship funding that is being thrown at the media is really not going to have a long-term effect on economic recovery or revitalization of that culture in that area. W would that be a sensible statement to make? I, I think that's absolutely spot on, and, um, and it's going to stay that way until such time as uh, accountability is established. And, of course, everything is being... Um, all, all the blocks are being put in the way to make sure that that never happens. Um, you know, and of the money that has been distributed, 
I mean, Louisiana has got the uh, the lion's share. I mean, 366 million so far. Florida, 121. Alabama, 125 million. Um, Mississippi, 120 million. But basically, that money is pretty much going to one he who shouts loudest, and, and secondly, um, you know, he who basically looks as though he might be a potential, he or she might be a potential problem. Um, and of course, BP are making sure that uh, you know the activists are um, you know, kept focused on the, the local issues uh, and not getting out and campaigning on a, on a national level. Um, I mean, I don't know of any uh, former oil industry colleagues who are campaigning um, to raise awareness here. As far as I know, I'm the only person in Western Europe uh, still trying to raise awareness of uh, what actually occurred and, and you know, what's occurring with the aftermath. Um, so the the money is, as I said earlier, the money is there, the funding is there, to effectively mitigate and um, and, and basically make sure that uh, you know the uh, corporate world is not threatened. And uh, Tony Hayward was was removed from BP. I mean, he was not involved in setting up this this whole operation. He knew something was going on. We know he knew something was going on, but he was not in the loop. His behaviour prior to April the twentieth. Uh, shows very clearly that he was well aware that something was happening and he was actually quite perturbed that uh, he wasn't in the loop. And, of course, uh, his behavior after the event was was embarrassing. Um, you know, here was a CEO behaving like a, a first-line supervisor and pointing the finger every which way except acknowledging his own responsibility. So, you know, now in the in the safe safe hands of, uh, of Doug, um, Doug uh, Suttles, then you know, obviously they've got this thing wrapped up. And, I, I mean, I really, really feel for the people in the Gulf Coast area. I mean, it, as I say, it really breaks my heart to see what uh, has transpired uh, and knowing that, uh, you know, this is, this is a global event. I mean, as uh, I discussed in the previous program with you, you know, the Russians are very, very astute. And, and they've uh, been looking at, uh, you know, what occurred in the Gulf and the, uh, the potential prognosis which is why they have been buying up all of the polytunnels that they can lay their hands on. It's very difficult to acquire polytunnels in Western Europe right now because the Russians are buying them all up because they're trying to cover as much of their um, arable land as is possible because you know, there is the potential risk that this oil corrects it mix is not only coming across the, uh, the Atlantic, the North Atlantic, in the Seabourn Gulf Stream, but of course it's because of what's been sprayed and the evaporation, it's also in the air. So, you know, we need to uh, take a very close look at what's occurring in the Gulf, and we need to learn from it, because there is a very, very, in my opinion, strong possibility that we may be feeling some of those effects in Northern Europe uh, sometime in the not-too-distant future. What would your underlying message of hope be to people in that area? You know, um, my underlying hope is that yeah, we, we do live in a wonderful biosphere. We, we certainly don't fully appreciate the capabilities of self-healing of this amazing planet of ours. And, you know, whilst we certainly have to play our part and, and certainly, you know, we could do a lot more, at the end of the day, you know, the planet will also play her part. So, you know, I don't believe all is lost, that's for sure. But uh, we're certainly not out of the woods. And Scott Porter, a response from you on that question. 
Well, um, when I first saw the oil spill, like we took Jeff Corwin out 17 days after the spill, there was a 10-foot layer of dispersed oil. I said, you know, we can handle this. This isn't bad. And now after seeing it 30 and 40 feet thick over here and watching the way it changed our surface currents, it's hard for me to be extremely optimistic about, you know, the how far the, the effects of this will stretch. So that's how I should leave it. And Wilma Subra, in your amazing work and service to the people of this region, what words of inspiration have you to offer them as we come to the end of this Crossing Over the Bridge program? That you're not alone, that we're here to stand with you and provide as much care as we are able to get. But the BP disaster, for all it's done to the environment, its impacts are currently being manifested in large numbers of individuals having human health impacts, and that issue needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed quickly. And what requests of support would you have for the media in your area and further afield in supporting all of these objectives that we have today in all of these issues? Please pay attention to what's going on on the ground. Pay attention at the local level, the huge impact that has resulted from this disaster. Wilma Subra, Ian Crane, and Scott Porter. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this Crossing Over the Bridge program. I do thank you for joining me today. Thank you. And to our listeners, I do hope that you enjoyed this program as much as I You can gain information from this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Com.